You're listening to Road to Jump, hosted by Harvard Center for International Development. I'm Evi Peña, and we're starting this series with a goal in mind, reimagining international development through a gender lens. But how do we get there, and where do we start? To explore these questions, we're bringing together voices from around the world, organizers, government officials, advocates, researchers. Let's dive in. Today, for our first episode, I'm joined by Fatima Sumar, Executive Director of the CID, and Mara Bolis, Research Fellow also at the CID. Welcome. Well, Evie, well, first, I'm so excited to be here with Mara and um, really take time to dive in through this podcast series and through all the events that CID is working on this year as part of our Road to Gem series to really go deep on why it's 2024 and we're still talking about gender and the inequalities that we see all around the world. The world got together just a few months ago down the street in New York City. And they published a report through the United Nations, our SDG report, Special Edition 2023. And it's really, for the patient, this was a checkup to see how's the patient doing, right? How's the world doing? We made a commitment for the world to be free of poverty by 2030. We came together as a global community in 2015. We rallied around what we call the Sustainable Development Goals, 17 goals to get us to zero poverty by 2030. Essential to that, of course, is women and girls. Um, it's so essential that it's its own goal, goal number five, SCG goal number five. And so we did a progress report that the UN published in this report that I really urge our audience to check out. And the finding of our patient is the patient may be dying if we don't take some steps here to really revitalize and bring her back to health. And so, you know, the bottom line is that we are leaving now more than half the world behind. And this is according to the UN report that we are off track and off target around the SDGs um, and that whether it's around poverty, hunger or climate, that under the current trends, if we don't correct course, 575 million people will still be living in extreme poverty by 2030. And only one third of countries are on track to meet these goals. Um, we're only about 15% collectively on track around these 17 goals. And SDG 5, which is an area that Mara brings tremendous expertise on, and we're going to dive in on a minute, in particular, is in trouble. And we're in trouble. And we all know this is basic common sense that we can't make, whether you're, whether you're a corporation in the private sector, whether you're a government, whether you're running a public school district, if you leave more than half your population behind, you're not going to achieve your goals. We know that in, we, intuitively, the research backs that up. And so we really wanted to take time at CID this year to dive into this particular issue around gender equality and how we're really going to get there. Yeah, and if I can just add to that, um, Fatima talked about the problem of global poverty. It ha it is a entrenched fact that there are tens of millions of more women and girls living in extreme poverty than men. Um, and this this is sort of on a good day, right? What we see coming up right now is a rollback in women's rights. So we are in a entering a regressive phase um, where what we what Fatima just laid out could have been seen as as kind of the best days of this work. Um, Chatham House recently cited the removal of basic rights for women around the world as one of the top issues facing the world in 2024. And th I have real fear for this year, um, given the flurry of uh, national elections that we're going to see, that there are going to be politicians that are really going to double down on misogynistic, 
anti-LGBTQ um, messaging in order to um, foment um, foment anger and get themselves elected. And what's the reason behind this rollback? In other words, why are we not where we need to be? Um, going back to this UN report. So if you look at how long would it take us? If, let's say we, we kept everything status quo today. Uh, we did everything we're doing. We didn't make a lot of radical changes in the way we run our institutions, our systems, our policies and laws. Um, at the current rate, according to the SDG report, it would take an estimated 300 years to end child marriage. It would take 286 years to close the gaps in legal protection and remove discriminatory laws. It would take 140 years for women to be represented equally in positions of power and leadership in the workplace. And it would take 47 years to achieve equal representation in national parliaments. I think, you know, one of the questions that we talk about, one of the questions I know our students are hungry to talk about, and others, whether you're in public sector, private sector, academia, is is the pace of progress of how fast we're willing to politically move to address these issues. Are we okay with that? Are we okay with the world and those numbers as just laid out? Um, let me put this in a different perspective for a moment. So, um, you know, we just came off of the high of Davos, the Davos moment, where many of the world's elites gather in Switzerland to talk about some of the most emerging threats um, that we're facing in society and to come up with solutions to that. Oxfam, um, which is an INGO that both Mara and I had the privilege of working at earlier in our careers, they use that moment every year to publish a report um, around inequality, which we talked a little bit about poverty, but to put this into context of inequality, which is really one of the threats we're facing in terms of our systemic institutions um, and, and, and how they are now currently structured. Since 2020, the richest five men, so five men in the world, have doubled their fortunes, according to this Oxfam report. Um, that same period, right? So take the five men on one hand. Almost five billion people have become poorer while these five men have doubled their fortunes. So at the rate we're going, we're looking at, what, another 230 years Oxfam is calculating to end poverty. But the good news is we could have our first trillionaire in 10 years. All right. These are all men. But what does that mean when we talk about women? Globally, according to this Oxfam report, men own $105 trillion more dollars in wealth than women all around the world. Um, that difference in wealth is equivalent to more than four times the size of the U.S. economy. So we have some structural issues in terms of how our systems are set up. Um, everywhere from our global institutions our multilateral um, agencies and how we think about the world in the private sector, how we think about how wealth is generated at the highest of levels, and then what that means for the person on, on, on the average street or in their farm or in their community. And I think that those are the types of conversations we really need to think about. There is good news. I don't want to leave everything with this height of everything's not working. I mean, in fact, one of the things that I think really energizes the work we do is that the research, the policy work, the, the advocacy, we know there are solutions. We know we have seen successes. We have seen breakthroughs. So it's not that we don't know what to do. And so we know what to do. Um, do we have political will at scale to be able to do it? Yeah. And just to add to that, I mean, I think the good news is 
We know what the structural barriers are. We know where there are common inequalities that are faced really at a global level for women to be prospering and to be more participating more in economic and political systems. We know that um, gender-based violence risk is a massive um, uh, determinant and and worries about sexual harassment are massive determinants, the extent to which a woman can feel safe engaging in the workforce. Occupational segregation of women in lower paid jobs and the aggregation of women in the informal sector rather than the formal sector, you know, inadequate access to safe transportation. We know what the answers are. We know what the what the barriers are. And what we need to do is mitigate these barriers when we're doing international development projects such as agriculture, such as transportation, such as clean energy. This is not rocket science. We know what the answers are. It's about having the political will in order to adjust from the default expectation, which frankly, is a default male expectation, and build in accommodating factors to acknowledge and manage these hurdles that are, frankly, different for women than they are for men. Right. And Fatima, you were talking about these gaps, you know, not just between men and women, but also there's divides between the global north and south, rural and urban areas, not to mention racial and economic divides. So the gaps are there, loud and clear. But what are the opportunities to bridge those gaps? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the reasons it's been so great working with Mara in different capacities, and one of the things her and I talk a lot about is going all the way from the individual level. So the what we could do, each of us right now in the roles that each of us have, whether you're studying, whether you're working, um, whether maybe you're doing home care right now, but you're still, you know, really contributing in so many ways to this conversation. The world has been designed and built by men, right? And Caroline Criado Perez in her book, Invisible Women, which I carry around everywhere, and it's, there's a copy of it right here in front of me, really underscores this point. And so what we're really trying to do is imagine a world that is built for all, where everyone can thrive, and not only some of us who are chosen get to thrive in this world. So, you know, the cool thing, for those of us looking to really have impact at scale, um, it's time to reimagine this world. What could that look like? What are the systems? What are the institutions behind how we could do there and how we could build that and how we get there? Um, so the first thing I would just say is some things are very obvious to us where there's gender gaps, right? We may study it. We may talk about it. It may be very obvious, like norms in our household, for instance. Um, there may be other areas where we are completely gender blind, Right. And so in my previous roles, I worked on infrastructure projects in many countries around the world, whether that's looking at, you know, building power stations and uh, power supply lines, whether that's schools or maybe it's roads or port construction. And as we're thinking through the design, as we're thinking through the impact of the infrastructure that we're trying to do to help communities get out of poverty and have opportunities for economic growth, Oftentimes, when you're working with the economists or the engineers or the contractors, right, you're talking about concrete and you're talking about the amount of kilometers of road you're going to build at what budget. We're not often talking enough about who's the road for. Mm -hmm. How do you build it in a way that spurs economic growth for all of its 
inhabitants? What are ways that you could build women's safety as you think about road construction and design? Where you put that bus stop, for instance, moving it even a little bit here or there could impact things like women's safety, children's safety. Thinking through all of the different areas of design is what I call and what we've both seen, I know, in our respective careers, where we're often just gender blind to that conversation. And so it's not that we don't know what to do if we were invited to come in. We're not often invited because we don't identify there's a problem in the first place. That's right. I was just reading um, an evaluation of a um, project in Lahore, Pakistan, to build out their public transportation system. And in the initial evaluation that I read, you know, spoke glowingly in terms of the economic growth that came from this project and the growth in jobs. And, you know, you read through it and you're like, this sounds pretty good. And then trying to dig into the documents, see, oh, I wonder how this these outcomes were different for men and for women. Well, then you go on to read another document that says, oh, well, right. I mean, as it turns out, that social norms are such that for most women aren't availing themselves of this transportation system. So it's serving 50% of the population pretty well. That doesn't even come up in the initial research. And then you see that they start to do some adaptations in terms of special purpose projects in order to create minibuses and these safe forms of transportation for women. What do you think the budget for those small side projects are compared to the one that was setting up the entire public transit system? And really, wouldn't it have been more efficient and effective to think from a planning standpoint in terms of how are men, women, people of different gender, how are they going to engage these public services? And is it going to work equitably for everybody who needs to benefit from them? And it goes back to what you were saying. It's not just the end product and the design process, but who's designing it? Who's building it? And so and, and for who? Exactly. And we have the job for international development practitioners is to overcorrect on sex disaggregated data and make strategic decisions on that basis. I was just reading an article that was that did a natural language study of three billion websites. And the study found that our minds are hardwired to connect the word human more with the word man than with woman. And the findings of the study were people see men as generic and women as niche, with women having stereotypically feminine stereotypes and in terms of what we're capable of doing, and men as being generic people who can do all of the things, right? This is this is three billion um, websites that they looked at. This means that you need to take that extra step. We need to step out of our status quo behavior and say, hold on a second. If I'm designing this power plant, if I'm designing, you need to take that extra step. I wonder if there's a difference. And we know how to gather sex disaggregated data. This is, again, not rocket science. So let me put some numbers against what Mara was just saying around um in international development funding. So for most uh, low-income countries that will require or rely on international development assistance that's coming from, maybe that's coming from the World Bank, multilaterals, it could be other government agencies or donors. If you look at OECD data, that's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Security, 
Um, and if you look at the official development assistance data, the ODA from the major donors, we call these the DAC donors, um, even if you look back, let's go back five years or so, in the 2016-2017 data set where they looked and examined international aid that was coming through what we call ODA, um, 62%, according to their findings of aid, was not targeting gender equality. Right, which means that it doesn't mean you're not spending money on gender, but it it likely means you're spending money for gender specific projects. But the that's not the vast majority of how aid is tagged or designed. Um, so unless you're specifically in that category, most of the aid is gender blind. Right. We talked a little bit about women and girls. You can imagine even less is going towards other issues around LGBTQ disabilities, other types of opportunity and equal access. These are at global levels, these numbers. There is and and the good news here, and I just want to say, if you look at the Biden administration, for instance, right now, they're committing, they just did a huge push around relooking at their gender policy coming out of the last administration. They have now committed as of um, a year ago, March around spring 2023, to spend about $2.6 billion on gender equality programs which is a great step forward. There's also push from Washington, but many other capitals and major donors around localization. And so getting money out of the hands of just major governments in London or in Brussels or Global North headquarters of INGOs and getting that to local organizations on the ground. Oftentimes those local NGOs, civil society organizations are run by women. Um, so there's this huge discourse and push to, to get to localization, which could have huge trickle down and a significant unleashing of power for women led civil society organizations. The theory is great for it to work, for that to potential to be unleashed. You have to be willing to rethink the system, systemic issues of how these organizations and institutions hold their own power. And, and that conversation and how you really get that, whether you're sitting in an INGO and willing to devolve the power of your budget, decision making, timelines and risk management to local organizations, again, often headed by women, whether you're sitting in major governments or whether you're sitting in major foundations like Rockefeller or Gates, how far you're willing to go to really walk that talk is going to be where the where the proof will lie in that pudding. And now I've confused many metaphors. <laughs> I just wanted to pick up something, to pick up on something that Fatima said. And it's back to your original question in terms of what work, what's working. One thing that is working is that we have a much more sophisticated understanding of gender than we did when I st first started working in the space. There is still a tendency to conflate gender with women and stuff for women. And we understand we started with the, the history of, of, of women in economic development starts with an approach called women in development, where we just kind of stuck women into patriarchal systems and called it a day. We understood that wasn't working. We shifted to gender and development was looking at power dynamics between men and women and increasingly people of under other genders and LB, LGBTQI populations to the point that the World Bank is adapting its gender strategy and bringing in LGBTQI plus awareness into how it approaches this work on gender. So we have a much more sophisticated understanding we need to keep that up and we need an increased focus on how men are part of the solution to achieving gender equality. 
And also increased funding uh, specifically for LGBTQ issues. I'm, I came across a report by the Global Philanthropy Project, and they surveyed funders based in the U.S. And basically, they found that 70% of them said that their institutions are responding to the anti-gender movement. And by that, I mean this ideology that attempts to codify and enforce the concept that biological sex represents the natural order. But 70% of the funders that this organization surveyed do not have an explicit strategy for countering this movement. So yes, there's a lot of funding gaps when it comes to work that is being done and for women and girls. When you look at LGBTQ folks, they're also lagging behind. So I, I think to your point about what power structures need to work like and who needs to seize power and share power and give power. We need to really rethink also cross-sector collaboration. How do you think that governments, corporations, philanthropy, organizers should be working together in order to adopt a gender lens? I mean, I think the first step, again, is sex-disaggregated data, is that we, we're not working off of the same song song sheet, you know, not every we don't have a common understanding of the problem because we're still operating in gender blind spaces. So I think a commitment across all of those spaces to increase research and insist that all projects and programs start with a gender analysis, track gender data along the way, and then look at the effectiveness of the program and the and the project in the after event in terms of how men, women, people of different genders were differently expect affected is a critical first step. So speaking a little bit more about Mara, what you were saying before about when you started doing this work, what did that look like? How has the, the gender lens evolved in international development? I'm for those of you listening, I'm like rubbing my head and I look like I'm in pain. <laughs> Thinking back to that time, which is, you know, arguably a tiny bit better. But when I started, my focus was on um, private sector development and private sector approaches in international development. My background was in international development finance and I had an MBA. And so I came to Oxfam um, kind of with that lens. And I was shocked to find the isolation and the si and the silos between people doing economic development work and people doing gender work. The economic development work was like economic development bros, right? It was like, we run financial models and you wouldn't understand us. And then uh, the gender space has its, had its own kind of degree of esoterica, right? Which I was very interested to learn about. But the two languages, the two spaces just didn't talk to each other. And I think it was, it was the research that came out about how much money women reinvest in their families versus men's disposable income spend. Eventually, there was more and more kind of cross-pollination to the point that I think that there's a greater understanding that in order to be effective, we need to take a gender lens to this work, but it's not always acted on. So I think that there's a lot of lip service where people get that that's what the research of the research show. But when you're actually on the ground implementing, moving things forward, are people suddenly forgetting the gender lens? When you look at it, is there budget attributed to every project to identify what the gender strategy is going to be? Or is it just a lot of lip service from people at the top? It's funny, Mara, that you uh, you went, that's the, the lens that you shared, because what it brought up for me is when I was very young, starting my career, I didn't start in the development space at all, actually. I started in the foreign policy, national security space. And um, when I was first after graduate school at the State Department, 
and thinking through the, the desks, which are the offices you could work in or the issues you wanted to work on. And I did a quick survey of, in my own way of who was working on what. I automatically gravitated towards making sure I would never work on the gender issues because the gender issues were just like a bunch of women sitting in this corner over here. They had no budget, no power. They were really, it was like we were doing them a favor by giving them a few hundred thousand dollars to play with in grant money. Mm-hmm. And then all the real money, the power, the issues that our political leadership cared about was, you know, all the way over here. And that's where the men worked. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be working where the men were working because they were doing real things. And they were in my, you know, 20, mid 20 year old perception. um, They were the ones working on hard power. That's where the money was, the political power was, the decision making authority was not where like the so-called gender issues were. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, 20, 20 years ago. Through my evolution of my career, and I've been both in in governments, I've been in civil society, and now here in academia, I do think things have gotten better where now I do think there's more respectability to work on these issues as a woman and not just get pigeonholed by that. I think you have men now working on these issues, which is a huge shift from where that was 20 years ago. And it's not seen as such a soft power Mm -hmm. mom and pop children's issue anymore, which is, I think, another huge shift in the discourse, um, especially for those thinking about careers and where they can have impact. One of the things that continues to frustrate me, though, and even when I went back into the administration before coming up here to Harvard, is that too often the gender budgets, the gender working groups, the gender teams are they're still not integrated within the broader priorities of the organization and institution. So we may be giving them more money, more staff, more lip service, but we still haven't taken that crucial step of just integration. Mm-hmm. Um And it's kind of a funny thing, right, for those of us working on developments, for those of us working on security for communities, if 100% of the population is not what you're concerned about when you're doing the bulk of your work, then what are we doing? You're perpetuating inequality. That's what you're doing. Right. So I I don't, while I am really grateful that there are some been some significant shifts in the workforce and institutional organizations, I think, within at least governments, INGOs, and other institutions, I don't know that the culture has really integrated in a way, particularly for top-down types of organizations where power budgets, priorities are set at the top. And then that trickle down effect, if we do that, it will take going back to the statistics we cited at the beginning, it will take the 230 years for us to ever get to that, because that progress is just way too slow with that implementation model. And I mean, some good news is that our institutions have the opportunity to catch up where the world's social norms are. So there's a really important research that came out this year out of University of Chicago's Booth Business School that looked Across the world, I think they captured feedback from countries representing 80% of GDP, the world's GDP. And the majority of men and women in all of those countries agreed with the women's right to work outside the home. And in the developing countries, they agreed that we need women-centered programming in order to advance women's opportunity. Not in the developed countries. In the developed countries, the predominant view of men and women is that we can call it good, which is terrifying. But in terms of talking about international development, 
there is wind at our backs from a general population standpoint, but the institutions from my perspective, haven't caught up. Right. And I and I think that lack of integration that you were discussing is just happens across the board. It's not just about government. You can see that also in some of the biggest corporations. Uh, the issue of gender is still siloed. And we have come far, not far enough, maybe. But what do you think the next era of international development and gender looks like? I'm so excited you asked this question. I think that the next era is about inviting men into care work. There's a disequilibrium where men are required to overinvest in paid labor in order to justify their roles and understand their identities of men. And women are required and put into a box of of over investing in unpaid labor to the point that their opportunities are restricted. But if you can rebalance that uh, disequilibrium and invite men into more care work, which is an important thing for women to address as well, right? But you know, to a large extent, men haven't been invited into care related spaces. They're often disparaged by family members. They're made fun of by their friends, and their identities have been so built around the money-making expectations, that it's really undermining their ability to kind of engage fully as humans, and it's restricting women's opportunities, right, in order to engage more in the workforce. And in fact, it's the research has shown that men, when they're able to engage more care work, they're healthier, they're happier, they feel more connected, less stressed, when that kind of, for men who are in more equal partnerships, in fact, they have more sex. This is is actually founded in the research. So why not undertake the shift? And But it's not a matter of just individuals alone, institutions have to change. Institutions need to embrace the human need to care for other people, that we're not robots here to just work and push pump out GDP, but we have human relationships and that men and women and people of different genders need time to care and be cared for. Well, I'm going to take what Mara said, but from a slightly different angle. We are in 2024, and yet how we measure poverty, how we think about whether or not a country has made it or not, is still a post-World War II lens of what progress looks like, as if we are just emerging from the ashes of World War II, which is kind of interesting to me that we haven't rethought this development frame in 70 plus years. Um, What if instead of measuring whether or not you are poor or rich and using GDP as the sole way of thinking about what wealth looks like and what does that even mean actually and GDP for who? You could be an oil rich resource country and your citizens could be highly unequal and poor, but you look like you're a middle income country, even though you have some of the greatest rates of inequality in your country, separating the rich and the poor, which by the way is playing out through most of Latin America as we speak right now. And and that construct is incredibly powerful actually because we make decisions every day around that of whether or not you're considered a least developed country, whether or not you're a middle income country, whether you are a rich country. And that's 
how we make decisions on whether or not we will fund you, whether or not we will support you and what the terms of that support would look like, whether that's grants, concessional lending, what the kind of development finance space then comes up with depending on those parameters. Well, what's missing in those calculations is that we have not come up with a measure that quantifiably values the contributions of women in society. Mm-hmm. We're using very traditional male approaches to the workforce. We quantify those. It translates up into national and international indicators. And then we make almost every decision societally around that metric. We haven't rethought that in 70 years. If economists, for instance, could help us rethink how you actually quantify the value of women's contributions at a local, at a national, and an international level. And I know organizations have run numbers on this, by the way. So it's not that no one, you know, there's a lot of great work in this space. And I think it's something like off the top of my head, I remember there's some figure out there like that's 11 trillion or something. If you actually start counting up Mm -hmm. women's and valuing and putting a number behind that, um, unpaid care is a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's even beyond unpaid care, though. It's also even within a formal workforce, we know the gender pay gaps. So even within the formal economy, not just the informal economy, we don't value women's contributions equally. That to me is a massive paradigm shift, Mm -hmm. right? When you think about that next era of what this could look like. If we're counting the wrong things, we're starting in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you're not counted, you don't count. Right. So I think the data collection and just how we measure and who is doing the measuring is really important, as well as the, the funding. And at the same time, it's also the way that we're looking at the gender lens in, in grants making and what that funding looks like. Because in the end, the way that funding is measured for gender focused work is also very siloed. And the stats that I was giving before about the amount of funding that goes to LGBT TQ organizations, it can't be quantified because if there's no explicit strategy from funders on how to address the anti-gender movement, there's no way to measure mm-hmm. how much funding there is actually available or is being used. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we know that it's it's not enough, uh, even if we can't count it. But where do we go from now in order to get to that new era that you are both talking about? You know, some of it is so simple. Really, it's a willingness for people to think about where there might be gender neutral equals male preference because no one ever asked anybody else. If you ask only head of household, you're going to get and you're taking that as representative of seven people's opinion. You're you are basing all of your decisions on the head of household, typically a man, who is unlikely to tell you that as there is in many countries, there are hungry women and girls living in his home. He may not even know because he's fed, right? There's such disparities. And some of it is just to have a little bit of curiosity, right? And this is what I say, you know, to all of the students that I meet in my office hours, just ask. You're working on a project, you're working on a clean energy project, just ask. I wonder if there's some difference in the way that men and women, people of different genders would experience the benefits or the risks of participating in this initiative. Look up the research. You can research gender and antitrust. You can research gender and clean energy, and you'll get a bunch of articles. Are they being used by the practitioners out there? It really, this is not that complicated. 
it's just it takes a little bit of will and curiosity and solidarity. Let, let me um, let me flag in real time, building on Mara's point. You know, just here at Harvard alone, for instance, we have a tremendous pool of research from our faculty around some of these issues. At the Kennedy School, we have Iris Bonet, and she's done tremendous research around gender equity in organizations. We also have Michaela Carlana, and if you're interested in education and gender and what that looks like, tremendous research that she's done in many countries. Zoe Marks also at the Kennedy School around gender and intersectional inequality. At the business school, uh, we have faculty like Kathleen McGinn, who's done work on uh, gender and social class at work and what that looks like. At the college, you have Jocelyn Viterna around gender norms, practices, reproductive health, and abortion. Jessica Cohen on public on maternal health at the public health school, alongside Anna Langer. And there's so many others. I'm just giving a sampling here, and there's so many others. So just to say, there is so much important research in academia happening right now. I only gave a sampling just here at Harvard when you add in from many other universities as well. I think funding for this research is super important so that we really understand the data. Uh, we understand the, the practice, the institutionalization of this and can share that. I mean, even research, I'd love to see numbers of how much um, we're funding within academia research on, on these issues for gender. And I bet it's a, a drop in the bucket compared to everything else we're funding is, is my, my gut and my guess. But let's see what the data suggests and says. So start with the evidence. Uh, you know, sometimes it doesn't exist, and that's a problem. Where we're, we're data blind, and that's a problem, and we have to address. But you know what? We're better than where we were twenty years ago. And often, we people just don't. We we do have. We yeah. do know a lot today. We know what we know a lot about what the problems are, but we also know a lot about what works, and we have that documented. Um, we have that from academia and researchers. We have that increasingly from practitioners who are doing more and more around um, data collection and evaluation and monitoring, which is publicly shared from many donors now, especially through the OECD, through the DAC community. So the literature is growing. Um, the knowledge is there. The evidence is there. It is on us now to read it to use it, to apply it, and to be critical thinkers in our own spaces. I'm just going to add to the list of luminaries that Fatima um, talked about and add Professor Hannah Riley Bowles, who's, who's edited volume on fatherhood and the next wave of gender equality was just magnificent and really very practical from a practitioner standpoint, offers a framework for practitioners to go forward in the business space, in the government space, creating policy that's going to create more true gender equality. Right. And you're both talking about the amazing amount, but also the incredible depth of research available. And it, it also sounds more like you're talking about making sure that that research also has actionable recommendations. What else can we do to bridge that gap between research and practice? We have to do um, we have to do the research together. Right. You know, gone are the days where you have researchers sitting in ivory towers trying to think up the question on their own. 
of what should they research? What should they actually look at and measure and, and evaluate? Uh, I think we're really lucky that we've evolved so much, certainly in the development side, and we see this with our CID faculty affiliates um, and many of our research partners, where increasingly the work has been doing not here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's being done in, in, in countries all around the world at the local level, where you're working side by side um, with practitioners, with NGOs, with governments to both identify the problems and work together on the design, the evaluation up front. I know certainly CID's faculty director, for instance, Asim Khwaja, when he work, approaches his work on, on education in Pakistan, he's he's not sitting here in his office. I know that for a fact he's not sitting here in his office thinking through what the problem is. It's often when he is in Punjab, when he is in Pakistan, when he is with his local partners on the ground looking and listening to say what are the problems within the education system, the private system, the public system. So the more and more we can move to models where we know each other, where the silos between academics and those in the world of practice are broken more and more, where we are co-creating, co-ideating and solving problems together. Um, that's where I think you get to these points of genius. I don't think it happens enough today. Certainly when I was in the world of practice before coming up here to CID, uh, our worlds intersected very, very little. And uh, I have an enormous appreciation now being on the other side, so to speak, of the wealth of knowledge that uh, the research is generating. And, you know, we need to bridge, make these bridges even stronger. And there's such an important partnership to have, as Fatima was saying, between practitioners and gender advocates, particularly in bolstering the gender mainstreaming strategy, which I'm very committed to, but has come under some some degree of criticism. For academics to work with practitioners to demonstrate the concrete outcomes that come when you really are intentional about gender mainstreaming, I think is is critically important to driving increased evidence-based commitment to gender um, to gender work and investing in the gender mainstreaming of of non-gender specific projects. And speaking of the future and, and how we are going to kind of mirror that bridging between the practitioner and research world, we're asking all of our guests who are going to be on the podcast series the same question. Imagine a future where gender takes the center stage in international development. What does that future look like? What it looks like to me is that assessment of various problems, planning around what to do with it, and evaluating solutions are done in a participatory, inclusive, intersectional manner that respects the needs, risks, interests, wants of men, women, and people of different genders from different backgrounds. I would love to be in a situation in a workforce and an organization and institutional culture where we don't even need to talk about gender. That's what it means to me, that it's such a duh moment. Mara, you said this to me many years ago. You see, when we were talking about gender, you said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. I don't think we all see it yet. But when we do, we'll never be able to unsee it. And that to me is the revolution. I think we're on our way, but we can't take 200 years to get there. Thank you, Fatima and Mara, for this great conversation and to our listeners for joining. Looking forward to reimagining the future of international development with you all.